Okay, welcome everybody again. For this evening, we want to get into this thing of method, which has to do with how we go about um, getting an interpretation and arriving at something that is practical for us in an application as well. So um, I'm going to try to do some practice here with you if I can. Um, Some of you might have referred to this as teaching. I prefer to think of this part especially as training. Training is a little more than teaching in that it gets people involved. And the problem is I can't, I don't really have the time to do it like it should be done. Somebody needs to do this. And um, maybe somebody could take up the challenge here to train people in studying scripture. That would be an interesting project, I think. Um, So applying what I call the normal method. Last night I talked about the normal or literal method as opposed to all the other methods, uh, their strengths and weaknesses, and this one's strengths and weaknesses, which I said I uh, vastly prefer. So first of all, I'd like to say we study the Bible inductively. And so here's a word I'm going to have to explain. This is... um, This is a way of approaching a subject uh, from one end or the other end. And the the opposite would be deductive. Uh, With inductive study, what you do is you start with all the small pieces and arrive at a conclusion. And with deductive study, you start with your conclusion or theory and then build your proofs and get all the small pieces after that to kind of build on it. Both of these approaches to a problem are useful in various uh, ways in business or in philosophy or in all kinds of things, even in Bible study sometimes, but especially in Bible study when we're doing, uh, when we're getting an interpretation out of a scripture, we, it's much better to use this method. I'll try to explain why. When we study inductively, that is, we get all the little pieces together first What we're doing is we're allowing the the biblical text to speak for itself because we're not coming to the text with a conclusion or a theory ahead of time, okay? So um, we want to consciously avoid putting personal views onto the text. We want to strive to be impartial and objective when we read this, when we read this text that's before us. And... uh, So, do you start with an observation or do you start with a theory? Hopefully here you're starting with an observation. That's going to be a first step. Um, Just to further clarify this, I might um, just use an illustration. Let's say you want to uh, get a bus ride somewhere and you have a bus schedule in front of you and it says at 3 o'clock the bus stops at this certain stop. And so you make your preparations and all the time that you're getting yourself ready, you don't actually know that the bus is going to be there at 3 o'clock, but you have a little bit of information. And so you call your neighbor. You might have doubts. You might say, well, is this bus usually on time? So you call your neighbor and say, does this bus get here usually on time at 3 o'clock? And you know that they have some experience. That's another little piece that you can get. And the neighbor says, well, actually, they usually get there about 3.05. And so you think, hmm, you still don't know what time the bus is going to get there. So you're you're gathering these bits of information and building toward a conclusion. And when you get to the bus stop, it's 3.04. You sit there for three minutes, and they still aren't there. It's 3.07, 3.08. 
Do you just give up and walk away? Well, no. It allows you to be flexible. You might think, I will wait another few minutes. And uh, sure enough, then at 3.09, the bus gets there. And they were a little bit late. Uh, so inductive reasoning gives you a little bit of flexibility. But what you're doing is you're not forming a conclusion ahead of time because you don't really know. Uh, you, you get as many, as many pieces of raw data together. And the more, the more data you get, the better your conclusion is going to be in the end or your interpretation of the situation. So that's kind of what we're doing in inductive study. Now, if you would study the Bible deductively, you would be like a scientist that uses the scientific method. He forms a hypothesis first, all right, and then he tests it. And, he, and they do this with their papers, too, when they present their papers at scientific conventions, which probably none of us really know much about because we don't go to these things. But they, they, when they present the paper, they state their conclusion first, and then they explain how they got to this conclusion. They, they let all the pieces and, and details come afterward. That's deductive reasoning. So hopefully that makes sense. So the first step in studying the Bible is observation. Observe, 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 and observe some more. Lots of observation. Identify details. Find as many details as you can. Write them down on a piece of paper. It's not difficult, by the way, people. It's not hard. Find the people. And just for some practice here, let's go to Luke 2. This is what I mean by training. Hopefully you can see what I'm doing here. And on the surface here, you might think, well, this is obvious, right? But hopefully as we lay this out, you'll see just how and why this is so important. Identify the people. Identify the places. Identify the events. Find the chronological markers. And there are just so many things that you can look by observing the text. Now, I want to differentiate with this word observing and seeing. Sometimes you say, well, I saw in this. Seeing is one thing. I know that we know what we mean usually when we say this. But if I look over this crowd of people, I see faces. But when I observe, I'm I'm taking note of who these faces are. There's a little bit of a, it's, a, it's a further step. It's a step beyond just seeing. And so when you look at the text, you need to kind of take um, inventory of what's there. And you kind of mark these things down. You, you get a mental awareness of what each piece is. That's what observation is all about. So who are the people in Luke 2? Give me some names. Rattle them off. Caesar Augustus. Augustus. Joseph. Joseph, keep going. Keep going. More. Up to about verse 7, through verse 7. Mary. Mary. The child. Shepherds. Shepherds. That's in verse 8, but yes. So, I'm sorry? Angels, yes, and you can keep going. So if we, we, we've, we can quickly write these things down. These are observations that you make. These are people. These are characters in this story. And then the next thing you do is try to figure out what role each person is playing. And so Luke is very good at this. And we see this in Acts, too, as we've been looking at Acts. Luke gives a lot of detail, and he gives us some background oftentimes on the people. Now, who's Caesar Augustus? It doesn't really say here. But we assume that he at least had some authority because he made a decree. And then you look at Cyrenius. It says that he was a governor. And it says where? 
and you see Joseph, it says he came from Galilee, and Mary was his wife, and she was pregnant, and so there was a baby, so there's a father and a mother and a son or a child. And so you, you can quickly put these pieces together kind of in a scene, as it were. You have somebody making a decree and somebody under him enforcing the decree, and down here are these people that are feeling the effects of the decree, all right? So just getting the people together, you can pretty soon start getting a picture of what's going on here. And this is all just by looking at the text, all right? Sometimes it's not as easy. I picked an easy one because um, just to help you understand how this is done. How about the places? Bethlehem, the city of David. It mentions uh, that this was a city where David went. And Galilee is mentioned here. Syria is mentioned here. Nazareth. So, yes, there, uh, there are places, there are events, there's a taxing, there is a, um, there is a birth. Uh, you, you, and again, write these things down like as it were in separate columns and find out what's going on. There are chronological markers here. It says, in these days, well, what's that mean? We might have to put that on the back burner and find out what that was about later because we're just looking at this text. And it says, and so it was that while they were there, in verse 6, and you can see that that's referring to Bethlehem, that she had a baby. She had a baby in Bethlehem. The baby came while they were there. That's a chronological marker. So you can find these things in the text just by observing them. You don't have to go to some other book. You don't have to go to some outside source to find out all that information. Uh, now, you can later, all right? That's a good thing. But what I'm trying to emphasize is you start with the text and observe what's there. The reason, if you do that, you, the Bible is more likely, the text is more likely to speak the message to you a little more clearly, all right? Also, think of what's not there. And that might take a little more imagination. You, you might start putting this story together and say, I wonder what, and then fill in the blank. Or I wonder who... And fill in the blank. It doesn't say this. It doesn't say that. And I might have been reading something into the story that I thought before, but now I see it's not there. Um, you can come up with a whole number of things. Note, take note of the things that aren't there that you might have thought should be there or that maybe you thought were there. That's all part of observation. Um, Compare details, count items, structure conversations. You don't really have conversations here, but many times you do. Like in Jeremiah, sometimes it says, The word of the Lord came to the prophet Jeremiah. Thus saith the Lord, tell the people of Israel, do not say. And boy, you really have a, a job there to try to put that conversation together, don't you? There's a lot of quotation marks inside quotation marks inside quotation marks. That observation, you can all do all of that in the text itself. And just see who's talking when and uh, in the quizzing that the young people do, they have this question, who said it? Well, that's a good question to ask, right? Who said it? Do you ever think about that when you're reading through the Bible and you're just maybe volume reading? And did you ever stop and ask yourself, who said this? That's a good thing to observe. Oftentimes you can find this out. Most times in the Bible we know who's saying what. Uh, there are probably some exceptions to that. 
Any questions or observations on, on this so far? Anything that I missed, maybe that I didn't observe? All right, so that's the first step. Uh, well, I might mention, too, with uh, counting items. That might not mean much sometimes. But I'll give you an example from our last Sunday school lesson, which we have the same as you do in Revelation 5. There is, you might have noticed that there is two groups of people at the end of chapter 5 in the last lesson. There's the big group of angels around the throne that are saying, uh, worthy is the Lamb to receive riches and honor and glory and power and wisdom and might. And there are seven things. Seven things. All right. And then there's another group of people that says, all creation joined and said, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him. Four things. Did anybody notice that? You can observe that just by looking at the text. Count them up. Is that significant? Well, there are a number of sevens in Revelation. We don't know just exactly why or how, but we can, you know, again, as we observe these things, we can maybe get an interpretation from it. Just by looking at the text, there might be something that emerges. Why seven and four? Well, there again, we, those are things, those are observations that we can make that maybe can be figured out later. But just notice the details. Look at the way the sentences are structured. This is a little tricky maybe because we look, we're reading translated versions and not the original language. But uh, there's, there's a, still there's kind of a structure in the, or the flow in the paragraph. You see that this happens and then this happens and then this person says this. And see if you can see anything in that. Um, so there are many, many things that can be observed that if we apply ourselves to these things, we might have otherwise missed. This is the first and most important step. Gather as much raw data as you can when you're studying the scripture and gather it from the text. All right? There are other steps sometimes that people put in between here, but the next step, and it's a fairly significant one, is interpretation. Interpretation is explaining the meaning, the intent, the significance, and the implications of what is being said or what's, what is in the text. It is determining what the author was communicating to his original audience. So here's something you're going to have to observe, too. You're going to have to observe who was the author. Well, and sometimes we don't know for sure, but we know that there was an author, and what was this person trying to communicate to his original audience? Again, sometimes we don't know for sure who the original audience was. Most times we do. It was the Corinthians. It was the Jews. It was um, you know, whoever it might have been, the Christians in a certain place. What was this person trying to communicate to the original audience? The original intent, it's sometimes called. And keep in mind that all, in, all through the Bible, you have these different units, 66 different units that were pre prepared and presented at different times and places. And each of them had a reason for being prepared and presented. When someone writes a letter to someone else or gives a report to someone else, there's usually something that kind of precipitates that. There's a reason for it, that, that this is happening. So that's what we mean by original intent. Who was the original audience and what was the author trying to communicate to them? So if you look at Luke 2, hmm, now we've got to come up with an interpretation after we have all this data together. Well, you might say, as you look at this for a little bit, that 
Luke was trying to tell Theophilus, and if you look back at chapter 1, you'll see that he was interviewing the eyewitnesses. All right? You can understand that from verse uh, 2 and 3. Um, so he was trying to tell Theophilus that what, I, what I've been seeing in this story is that these events seem kind of random and out of the blue, but look what happened in the randomness of the events. And he doesn't say this specifically here, but in other places, that God was working this out, working out these details. So the taxing, the fact that Caesar was the emperor of Rome at the time, and the fact that these other people were all in their positions is all kind of God's working in this whole thing. Events might seem random in this situation, but they really weren't. Maybe that's the interpretation here. So again, as we read on and as we continue to build, the interpretation can become more clear. Sometimes the author says in the text what the interpretation is. Here it's maybe not quite as clear. The facts are replete here, but... uh, that's how you come up with the interpretation. You try to figure out what the original intent was. All right? Any questions on that? We're not at application yet. All right? (laughs) Okay. The next step is correlation. And correlation is looking at the larger context. And it might involve doing kind of a general book study And I actually did a little bit of this when I looked back at chapter 1 here in Luke to try to see what Luke's purpose might have been in writing this. So you connect the themes and ideas from the larger work, which in this case would be Luke. And that takes a lot more work. And maybe we know some of these things already. We have an advantage because we have knowledge of Scripture. And you you try to interpret or you try to build on your interpretation of Luke 2, verses 1 through 7, by what you read in other parts of Luke or other parts of the Bible. All right? That's also the larger context. So, for example, if you're reading about Jesus' crucifixion later in the book, uh, you can get a lot of data from that, and you can come up with an interpretation fairly easily. Jesus died for our sins. Uh, uh, The author is trying to communicate this to the audience. This is how Jesus died, and this is what happened. And this is, um, maybe he even explains to a certain degree why, because he records the fact it is finished, that Jesus said this, and the attitudes and the, the direction of Jesus' mind or his heart when he was on the cross, how he forgave the thief, and all these details that are included here can help us to see what the Interpretation is of that passage, but when you look at the larger scripture in the history of salvation, that helps you to fill out what's happening in that particular passage. So you can learn a lot more by correlating other themes and other teachings from other parts of the scripture. Another example would be, again, from Revelation. We're looking at Revelation. We just looked at the four horsemen. Did, it, did any of you think about that the four horsemen were somewhere before in the Bible? Zechariah. Zechariah 1, there's four horsemen. Could it be that John, or what John was seeing here, made him think of Zechariah? Or the reason that it was revealed to him was because this is somehow connected to what God had revealed to Zechariah. And so that's correlation. And you have to do a lot of that in Revelation, by the way, 
You have to know so much about all the threads that are coming through the Bible in Revelation that kind of get tied up at the end. Uh, there's, there's, it's an endless amount of study. That's why it's so challenging for teachers, I think. One of the reasons. So, and then also you want to tie theology into the passage. And what we mean by that is the story or the idea of God and who he is in this passage. Jesus is on every page of the scripture. Did you know that? <laughs> He's always there. He's always there. And you can find him. He's in the Psalms. He's in the most remote corners of the law. In Leviticus, he's there. He's always there. When Jesus was on the road to Emmaus with the disciples, I referenced this story earlier. He said, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he went through the whole thing explaining how he had been there. He, he saw himself in the scripture on every page, on every book. So he's always there. And this is what theology does. So it brings Jesus and, the, and God, the Holy Spirit, it, it ties God's work in with this. And that fills out your interpretation. All right? And then finally, again, there may be more things you can add to this, but finally, application. Application, then, is finding out how the interpretation relates to your own experience, your own life. So if you have the correct or something close to the correct interpretation, that, that is, the more, the more observations you make, the better your interpretation is going to be. The better you fill out your interpretation with the whole of Scripture, the better your application is going to be. All right? Put, the principles from the interpre- put principles from the interpretation into practice in your own life, in your experience. That's what application has to, uh, is doing. So you find comparisons. Let's say you're looking at Luke 2, and you think you know now what the interpretation is. Well, then how does that relate to me? Do I have, well, I was never in Bethlehem. I was never in Galilee. I was never in that part of the world. I don't even know these people. But you could say, well, now, wait a minute. Uh, I know something about taxes. I um, know something about traveling. I know something about having children. You might start tying things in with this passage here. And you might say, I understand that this is talking about Jesus who came from my sins. And there's a lot of ties you can make, a lot of relations, connections, threads you can tie with your own experience. And then you find the principles that are relevant to your experience and you apply them to your life. Whatever they may be. There are things you can learn from the passage because they relate to your life and your experience. Don't let your application be too far from the original meaning. Where's the line? I'm not sure. But it better not be completely the opposite thing. Sometimes people can stretch the application pretty far wide of what the interpretation actually is. And uh, you'll have to find out how to do this. Another thing I should have mentioned here earlier is that when you're looking for the way back at step two, this is where the spirit begins to work, to illuminate, like I was talking about on the second night. The spirit begins to shine his light on things, and the interpretation starts becoming clear. And as you look at other parts of the scripture, more illumination shines. And in application, then you point it at your own life. The spirit looks at your, helps you look at your own experience and find out uh, how to apply it to your life. So rely on the Spirit in this process. He really does, and he can, he will help you 
to understand how to apply it. So I think these four steps are important in coming up with the right use or rightly handling, rightly dividing the word of truth, as Paul told Timothy. And I think that many times what people do is they'll go straight to application because that seems the most practical, right? And that might work. You might come up with the same application, just looking at reading once over the story of Luke uh, 2, 1 to 7. You might come up with the same application as you did by going through all that work, but the chances that you won't are too high to risk. And so I think it's always better to follow this these steps in this order. And it's not really as hard as it might sound. Maybe you do this already and you just didn't think about it. And also to keep them in this order. Um, I think too many times people don't do enough observation. And I, so I think step one is the most important one here. If you, if you gather as much information from the scripture and you write them down, you take note of these things... That's the digging part. And after that, the Spirit can help you. You need to do the digging and find these things. That's the hardest work, probably. And it's the most uh, foundational to getting a proper application. So if there's anything that you're going to write down, write these four things down. All right? I think that they're very useful and important. They have been in my life. I think there have been many times when I have have to snap myself back to this. And... And say, wait a minute, Aiden, you're not um, correlating the ideas with the rest of Scripture here. Think about what the rest of the Scripture says. Another example might be with correlation. When we study salvation, for instance, in the Bible, you don't, you're not going to learn a lot just from studying one book of the Old Testament, for instance, about salvation. You might find some things, but in the New Testament, there's a lot about salvation, especially as, as pertaining to the work of Christ. But yet you'll find in the New Testament that the books, especially the epistles, don't all have the same theme or the same focus in salvation. So when you're looking at Galatians, for instance, you might get one picture of salvation. You look at Ephesians, and everything that Ephesians says about salvation, you might get a slightly different picture. But bring them together, synthesize them somehow, correlate them, and that will help you to make a better interpretation and a better application. Okay. Questions or comments? Okay, let's look at a few factors. Uh, we've got some ground to cover here yet in about five minutes. Uh, factors in finding the interpretation. And in some ways, this goes back to observation. Um, but the reason I put this in at the end here is because it's not part of the text observation. Necessarily, Some of them might be. But you're going to have to get some outside help oftentimes. In, like, for example, when we look at Luke 2, there's a name Caesar Augustus. Who was Caesar Augustus? Well, you might have learned in school that Caesar Augustus was uh, one of the first emperors following. He was the son of Julius Caesar. He was a Roman emperor during Jesus' time. So, and you can learn a lot about Caesar Augustus in, a, say, an encyclopedia. There's a lot of information about him. His life story, pretty much, you can gather from other sources. But it's not, there might be tidbits in the Bible, but you're not going to learn a lot from the Bible about Caesar Augustus. Um, okay, literary genre is the, the type of literature that you're looking at. So Luke is historical narrative. 
It's told after the fact. There are prophecies in the Old Testament that point forward to things that will happen. Like Jeremiah, for instance, he's constantly talking about what's going to happen. You're going to go to Babylon, you're going to be there for 70 years, and this is why, and then you're going to come back. And that, it's, that's not a historical narrative. That's, although it might be in the sense that uh, Jeremiah was saying, this is what happened to me. God told me this, and I recorded this. But the, the genre is prophecy. And in Revelation, it's apocalyptic literature, which is things that have to do with the end times. And in the Psalms and the Proverbs, you have wisdom literature. Um, in, the, in the epistles, you have didactic teaching, or uh, there's a letter. It's not, that may not be historical narrative either. It's going to be something else. It's teaching. So you have a number of different literary genres in the Bible. And sometimes they're mixed together in a book. That happens, too, considerably. And you have to determine what passage is before you. So I look at Luke 2. I can say this is historical narrative. And like I said, I don't have time to go through all this, what all these are. But suffice it to say that they do have some different rules for interpretation. When you read a poem, say The Midnight Ride of Paul Revere, it has a different feel than if you would read a book or a chapter in a book about Paul Revere's ride. It, you, you get a different feel of it, and you're going to interpret it differently, right? Because the one is a poem, and it's meant to portray the story in a different way than, than the historical writing of it. So you interpret it somewhat differently. So take that into account when you're interpreting different types of scripture. and Define the historical background, which is the things that have to do with what happened before, say when you're looking at Luke 2. What's the background to this? Again, you can find a lot of information outside of Scripture. The historical setting is where you, this happened in at the time. That's the present moment in Luke 2. And the historical occasion has to do with why was this written? It has to do with the reason for writing, which is here to find the author, find the audience, if you can. Find the date of the events. And the date of the writing, which are often not the same. Often the date of writing is after the date of the events. They're sometimes very shortly after and sometimes a while after. And put these pieces together. It might help you find the reason for writing. And oftentimes in a book, the reason for writing is connected to someone else that's mentioned in the text. Like Paul writes Timothy to warn him about false teachers. That's the third party. Or Paul writes Philemon to talk about Onesimus. He's the third party. And that's the reason that if you can find a third party who's not the author or the audience, that often has to do with what the reason for writing is. So find those things. That's part of observation. Do word studies. This requires not Webster's Dictionary, by the way, but original language dictionaries. (laughs) Okay? The Bible was written in Hebrew, Aramaic in the Old Testament, and Greek in the New Testament, and there are very good, very good sources for this. Um, do the word study if you can. A book study means getting the whole book. This is a lot of work, though, so um, I don't know if you have time to do this or not, but book studies are excellent things to get involved in, especially if you're a Sunday school teacher. Uh, find the parts of speech if you can, again, in the original language. Here's some tools that you can use in Bible interpretation. Concordances, I put them in order here of what I think is order of importance, all right? Concordances, uh, which are often like found in the back of your Bible, those are not exhaustive though. They'll help you find other places in the scripture where a certain word or an idea is found. And all it gives you is the scripture or the reference. 
Um, Strong's is a good one uh, for the King James Version. There are concordances for other versions as well, if you use other versions. Dictionaries and lexicons, which are very nearly the same. Um, they're collections of words in different languages. They're the ones that give you the meaning of a word. And in Greek, the Thayer's, I don't know if you've ever heard of that one. That's the one I like to use best. And in Hebrew, Brown Driver Briggs, or BDB, it's often shortened as. That's one of the best ones out there. You can, you can buy these, or you can get them online for your Bible program. They're easy to find nowadays with the Internet, so really they're, they're kind of cheap and easy nowadays. But we used to have to go through everything with books when I studied this before. Now we can just uh, click a mouse. Topical indexes is uh, what, like... Um, um, Naves, Naves topical uh, concordance or index or whatever they call it. It'll, it'll help you find, say, if you want to study grace, it'll help you find all the places in the Bible where this topic is discussed, and it might explain some things about it. An encyclopedia is, gives you a lot more information on it, and then a commentary will give you yet more. And commentaries are often first resorts, but should probably be more like a last resort. And other books can help you as well. So there are many, many tools that I love to use these tools that you can use in Bible study, and they can help shed light on and give you a better interpretation for the Bible. Now, I ran through this pretty fast, so if you want to discuss more of this later, uh, feel free to ask. Um, But I want you to get those four steps especially. I think they're the most important thing here. Thank you.